So <clears throat> my name is Celine Moutier Maria. I am a community health worker at Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center here in Louisville, Kentucky. And I am going to be talking about social determinants of health in inner city populations. Um, and although um, our clinic is considered is in a more um, urban area, you'll find that as we talk, and I want this to be more of an interactive presentation where you all can, we'll save time at the end for answers, but if something is really burning at you and you want to um, ask it in the middle of it, feel free to raise your hand. Um, but as we're going through the discussions, you'll start to see that many of the barriers that people experience in inner city, more urban areas are very similar to those that you find in rural populations and just in general to any population that has been, you know, disenfranchised, has limited access to resources. We all face very similar struggle, struggles despite the makeup of the people that we're working with. So, all right. So this is my disclosure, no financial relationships to disclose and whatnot. So um, throughout this presentation, we're going to be talking about the impact that social determinants of health have. Well, first, we'll really kind of give you a picture of our clinic. We are a relatively young clinic, um, and so you'll get to hear a little bit about how we got started. And then we're going to talk about the many challenges in the um, U.S. healthcare system, looking at social determinants of health, how those have an impact um, on our overall health, patient outcomes, patient engagement, self-efficacy, all of that. And then we're going to talk about how, with all of those challenges, in the U.S. healthcare system, how providers can utilize community health worker support to address social determinants of health, which will lead to better outcomes. So, <clears throat> Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center is a faith-based, federally qualified healthcare center. Um, we started out in 2008 when a retired cardiologist in Louisville, his name is uh, Dr. David Daggerford, he did many mission trips abroad and started to find, you know, and, and notice that there was just as much of a need right here in many of our own backyards and our own neighborhoods. And so he shifted his focus and put his energy into reaching out to the members of the Shawnee community. He worked with the Shawnee Neighborhood Association and facilitated a needs assessment. And out of that needs assessment, um, the residents of that neighborhood said that what would be most beneficial to them would be having a medical clinic um, in their neighborhood as the other clinics around them were, could be hard to reach for some people with certain barriers. And so we opened in 2011. And in 2015, we received a federally, health, federally qualified healthcare status recognition. So that means we serve everyone, whether or not they have insurance, no matter what their income is, and we specifically target our services to those who are medically underserved. And in 2016, we began our school-based health services in collaboration with Jefferson County Public Schools. In 2017, we added our dental um, center and our mental health services as well. And in February of 2018, which is the same time that I started working at Shawnee Christian Healthcare, uh, we received patient-centered medical home recognition, and we will get into what that means a little bit later in the presentation. So our mission at Shawnee is that we seek to improve the overall health of the community through a comprehensive array of services that address physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual needs. We embody the love of Jesus and work to address both immediate and systemic causes of poor health. Um, our key values include whole person care, neighborhood transformation, and high quality of care. 
So our overall goal, what really drives us, is to focus on integrated, comprehensive care, being as much of a one-stop shop as possible for our patients, because we understand that studies show that is really what helps health outcomes um, the, the most. So we have, like I mentioned, one primary care site. Within that site, we have behavioral health providers from our behavioral health director to our behavioral health consultants that are actually on the clinical floor and get to meet with every patient that comes through our doors. They provide um, depression questionnaires, the PHQ-9. They measure anxiety, and they just have basic conversations and education with every single patient that comes through. Then they are introduced to our behavioral health services in case they would like to work with a counselor, whether that be managing depression, anxiety, substance use um, issues. We have all of those services on site. Um, and then we also have a dental site, just a few storefronts down. Uh, we have five school dental sites and then um, three school-based sites with both medical and dental on site. So we are located in the West Louisville uh, Shawnee neighborhood. Uh, our address is 234 Amy Avenue, which is our medical office and behavioral health services. And we also, like I said, to a few storefronts down in the same shopping center, um, our dental um, office is at 222 Amy Avenue. Our three full-service school-based health centers are at Shawnee Academy, which combines both middle and high school, Maupin Elementary, and um, Atkinson Elementary. And then we have seven school-based dental clinics. This year, we actually also have... Um, we have 10 mobile dental services available. So here is some data just to help you kind of get a picture of how many patients come through our doors. We see just under about 4,000 patients with more than 10,000 visits. 94% of them have low incomes. 75% are publicly insured. 12% are uninsured. Most of our patients are adults. And many of our patients have complex health needs. So 38% have high blood pressure. 12% have diabetes. And 8% have asthma. I will share with you all now that I am not the data person on the team that made this presentation. I am the, the people person. I'm all about the stories. And so they've helped me put all of this data together in a way that's presentable. But if you all have specific number questions, I may have to take those back with me and get back to you. But I have cards and whatnot so we can stay connected. So that <coughs> patient-centered medical home recognition, that basically explains that we are a clinic that provides comprehensive care, care that is patient-centered, coordinated, accessible, and is of high quality and is safe. And so that is a lot to make sure that we are covering for one clinic that hasn't even hit our 10 years yet. Um, and so a lot of this presentation is to address how um, community health worker support has helped us to achieve the goals of PCMH status. Any questions so far? So challenges in the U.S. healthcare system, something I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. So of course, cost of care can often be a big barrier that uh, many providers face. Uh, healthcare provider shortages, uninsured rate. Luckily, we are in a Medicaid expansion state, and so that has helped many more people get access to health insurance. Um, just the history of discrimination, racism, and inequality in this country and in our healthcare system as a result. Um, disparities in um, health outcomes and social determinants of health, which is what we'll focus on today. Um, and so, we're going to start first by looking into uh, our patient population so you all understand some of the um, 
many stressors and, and barriers and issues that are facing our patients. Um, and then we'll get into some of the social determinants discussions after that. So we primarily serve the 40211 and 40212 zip codes in Louisville. Um, and we do have patients that come from outside of Jefferson County, though, and many other zip codes, but most of our patients come out of uh, the Shawnee neighborhood. Um, 70%, 77% of our patients are black, 19% of our patients are white, and 3.4% make up other racial makeups. And um, the majority of our providers are white, so we will talk about, too, how um, those dynamics play into the ability to build trust and rapport with uh, providing care and get into a lot of those other dynamics as well as we t keep talking. So in terms of economic conditions, in our service area, the per capita income is about, you know, $14,000. As you can see in Jefferson County, the per capita income is higher than that. And then, you know, it's not, you know, Jefferson County is higher than Kentucky, but our service area in general is still lower than Jefferson County, Kentucky, and nationally. And then a large, <coughs> a good majority of our uh, Patients fall below 100% of the federal poverty level, and then many of them also fall below 200% of the federal poverty level. And all of these numbers, again, are greater than anything you see throughout Jefferson County in general, Kentucky, and nationally. So educational status, we also notice disparities through there. Um, as you can see, we have higher percentages of people in our neighborhood with no high school diploma and lower percentages of people in our neighborhood with um, uh, not a bachelor's degree or higher, and there are a number of factors for um, those outcomes. A lot of it has to do with lack of resources within some of the schools in our area, um, lack of support at home, social issues at home, just a whole lot that goes into the picture of why the educational status uh, numbers are different. When it comes to the physical environment and access to healthy food, as you can see, our service area is in this square here um, in the graph, and you see the darkest, the most amount of dark colors in the smallest area right in our neighborhoods, and that just shows how many, how much of a food desert um, it is in that area, and that definitely is something that impacts many of our patients. Um, you can imagine how difficult it might be for someone who's supposed to be eating healthier, um, more fresh produce and things like that when there isn't a grocery store in their area that they can get access to. So when we're looking at housing, 58% of our renters and 41% of our homeowners pay more than 30% of their incomes on housing costs, and 46.7% of all housing units have one or more substandard conditions. As you can see, lead poisoning is really pre prevalent right in our service area. And then transportation is definitely a major barrier. 27.4% of our households do not have a motor vehicle. So I lived in Chicago three years for three years before I moved back home here to Louisville. I didn't even take my car up there because public transportation was readily available. I could get anywhere on the train or the bus. But being back here in Louisville, I absolutely needed a car because things are just not as centralized and close. And on top of that, Yes, we do have TARC, our public transportation, but it doesn't reach every single area, and the frequency of buses coming through, you know, it's not enough to solely rely on that as the best method of transportation. 
Um, a 2012 survey found that patients who rode a bus to receive health care were twice as likely to miss an appointment than patients who drove cars. I have lots of clients who will tell me that they had to take two, they had to walk a mile to the bus, take two buses just to get to us. And in this weather, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. I wouldn't be coming to my appointments either if I had to do all that. So 25% of those with low incomes missed an appointment due to transportation. So that is a major barrier. And as I've talked to other community health workers in Louisville, housing and transportation seem to be the reoccurring theme where we have very little um, options for resources to help support our patients with managing those things. So just to kind of put that out there. And when we look at health status, whether you're looking at high blood pressure um, to diabetes, the prevalence of diabetes in our service area is much greater in comparison to um, our general area. And then if, uh, more concerning is the mortality rate, mortality rate due to diabetes, which, again, you can see is much higher. So when you put all of those things together, it's not surprising that we would have disparities in life expectancy. Um, some studies show that between the differences in West Louisville and East Louisville can be as great as 8 to 12 years in life expectancy. And that blew me away when I first learned about that. And I think that really is what got me passionate about this work because these are things that we can change and we can control. Um, and so... The whole, my whole goal and what drives me is to figure out how we can make some changes and make sure that everyone across Jefferson County has um, equitable resources and access to those resources. All right. So before we get into this, what, ha what do you all know about social determinants? What are social determinants? Any examples people can provide from what you know? We talked about some of them. So, yes, 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 economics, financial security, transportation. I think some things many of us have always had access to, right? We've been privileged not to ever really have to think about transportation, and so we don't always conceptualize or think that many other people struggle and how much of a barrier that can be. But anyone who's had to wait on a bus in the cold or in the rain probably knows how much of a barrier um, not having a car can be. So social determinants of health are structural determinants and conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, worship, and age. So we're looking at income, socioeconomic status, education, physical environment. We talked about housing um, and food deserts, but we didn't talk about even safety, too. So sometimes our providers might tell a patient, I really think that you would benefit from maybe taking a walk every day or whenever you can. Um, <clears throat> not just safety in terms of, of violence, person-to-person uh, -person violence, but even safety in terms of sidewalks. Um, there are some parts of the neighborhood where there are no sidewalks um, around them, and so they can't really safely take walks. Maybe they don't have a lot of green space in terms of parks. Maybe those parks aren't necessarily the safest places to be. And so, you know, it can seem pretty straightforward, hey, take a walk when you can, but it's not always that easy to accomplish even that, that goal. Um, so we also look at employment or general financial security, social support networks, access to health care, transportation, again, being a big one. And what studies show us about social determinants of health is that about 10% of our overall wellness and um, just well-being can, can come from health care. 
30% can come from genetics, but many studies show that 60% really is due to environment and behavior when you're looking at wellness, behavior change, and things like that. And so you might meet with your provider, and they might tell you, hey, based on these labs, you should probably watch your carb intake and things like that. And you might know, well, hey, everyone in my family has had diabetes, so I probably should watch out for that. But then when you go home and you try to apply the information that you were provided with in that appointment and you start to remember, oh, that Kroger that was down the street got shut down for whatever reason. And that was our only source of fresh produce um, and fresh food. So what am I supposed to do now? Or maybe the plant or the company they were working for, the factory they were working for, laid off a bunch of people. So now how am I supposed to afford the food if I can even get there? Oh, wait, I have a car payment. How am I supposed to even cover that? you know, and then have the car to get to the next closest grocery store that's available. So I think that oftentimes we provide recommendations, and it's not necessarily our fault because in that clinical space, you don't see what the patient is going through. You only have maybe, what, 20 minutes to get to know somebody sometimes, and so the ability to pull all that information about how manageable is this recommendation is not always possible, which is why we'll talk about community health worker support and what a difference that can make. And so when I think about addressing social determinants of health, I always think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We know that in order for people to do more than just survive day to day, they need to have at least that base part of the pyramid met. So shelter, shelter, food, water, just the basic necessities are not always as accessible as people might think that they are. And so for me, if I'm going to make a recommendation or if a client comes in as, and is in a crisis, a lot of times I'll ask, have you eaten today? Because it's so hard for us to think if we haven't eaten. And I think that, you know, just being <coughs> a faith-based organization, we look at those. We want to make sure that people are safe and comforted, even if we may not be able to solve all of the problems that they face. But this is a driving force for me in looking at how do we help people do more than just survive, but actually go on to thrive and, you know, get closer to that self-actualization. Any questions so far? Good? Okay. So um, at our clinic, like we said, the U.S. healthcare system, there are many challenges that we all face, and sometimes you're just not able to, one, pull out the information you need in those appointments. Sometimes I mentioned that, that racial disparity as far as who, what our patients look like and what our providers look like. Sometimes it's just a level of, of trust building that takes time and takes a lot of effort. Um, and so that can't always necessarily happen right in that appointment. But even if you've been able to develop that trust and rapport with your patient, if you've got to see the next patient in the next 10 minutes, how much more can providers do outside of the clinic? And so at Shawnee Healthcare, we incorporated community health worker support and um, to kind of bridge that gap. And so a community health worker is a liaison or link between health and social services and individuals to facilitate access to services and improve the quality and cultural competency of service delivery. A lot of times community health workers are lay people. They are based in those communities. They already have trust with those community members, and they can contribute a lot of knowledge about cultural values and things like that to the clinic. And so utilizing that support can bring a whole new level of understanding in terms of how we view the, neighbors, uh, the neighborhood. And <clears throat> we mentioned that 
um, PCMH status that we were recognized with. And CHWs really can be key to providing that comprehensive, patient-centered, coordinated, accessible quality and safe care to improve patient outcomes and experiences. So whether that be praying in, in our prayer room with one of our patients, if that's what they're needing at that time, or going to a specialist appointment with that patient just to kind of help them manage those nerves, help them or model how to take notes, how to communicate with providers. You know, community health workers can assist the provider and the patient in an array of, of ways. Um, we do, not every community health worker does this, but um, I do home visits as well. And so really, literally meeting the patients where they are can give you a whole different understanding of what's going on with them, what barriers they're facing, and why they might have difficulties accomplishing some of their health and social goals. And so when we were developing our community health worker program, we used the model created by the Appalachian Kentucky Healthcare Access Network. They are a group that trains community health workers throughout Kentucky and provides them with these core competencies. So public health concepts and approaches, documentation, reporting and outcome management, communication, organizational and community outreach, care coordination and system navigation, health coaching, advocacy and community capacity building, legal, ethical, and professional conduct. We actually, this year, maybe two months ago, just got the certification for um, community health workers approved, and now there is a whole process that people can go through to become certified as a community health worker. And our next step as the with the Kentucky Association of Community Health Workers is to become Medicaid billable. Uh, in many states, there are community health workers that are Medicaid billable, which brings an additional value to the clinic um, as far as utilizing this programming. Pictures. So the, um, after receiving our training, we basically tried to figure out, well, how do we incorporate community health worker support in our clinic? In Louisville, there are community health workers in a number of settings, um, not just clinical health-based settings. Um, so you have to kind of, once you get the basic level training, figure out how it's going to work for your setting in particular. And so um, the primary, like, my preference for getting referrals as far as identifying patients who would benefit from community health worker support is from providers. And so the process, you know, is really the, our first point of contact is the provider a lot of times. They are able to pull information or if they're continuing to see the same patient over and over again for the same situation, they can pull a community health worker into the equation and that often will start to highlight, well, this is why we're continuing to go through this process all over again. They just haven't had access to A, B, and C. And so once the provider connects the patient to the community health worker, we're able to um, have the patient be the leader in this, really have a sense of autonomy and ownership in creating their care plan. They may pull in people that they trust, their support network, whether that be family, friends, um, spiritual leaders, whoever they feel comfortable being a part of that care, we make sure to incorporate them and basically discuss what are your priorities right now, what's going to help decrease at least a little bit of stress so that we can move on to other goals and things like that. And so sometimes I might get referred a patient who 
you know, continues to come in with elevated blood pressures and maybe the provider is saying we should get them a blood pressure monitor so they can check it at home, teach them how to use it, teach them how to track, and teach them how to talk to the providers about those results. And so that might be what my conversation starts out with, but then, you know, they might reveal in that conversation that if they don't get their rent paid for this month, they're going to get evicted. And maybe they share some other things about, yes, I want to bring you back the data for blood pressure management, but I had to pay someone to take me here, so I don't know if I'm going to have the money to pay them for another ride to get here. And so then we realize, well, hey, blood pressure management is very important, but we have some other barriers that maybe they might want to prioritize that would allow them to focus on this. Because I can give you a blood pressure monitor, but if you're concerned about getting evicted, that blood pressure monitor is just not going to matter in that moment. So we tried to look at, you know, a comprehensive picture of what all is going on, decrease the stress that we can, and then start to, you know, and continuously talk about um, health, healthy behaviors and providing health education in those more natural settings. Um, so <clears throat> once a plan is identified, you know, a lot of our work is doing the research, looking at what resources are out there, um, building partnerships. Our community partners are vital to the success of our program because we're not experts in everything. I'm not an expert in finding and helping someone with employment, but we have great programming at the Urban League that can help someone with that. And maybe we don't have a gym at the clinic, but we have a partnership with the YMCA that helps our patients get access to a couple months of a free membership at least. So those partnerships really are vital. And um, then bringing that, bringing that information back to the patient and allowing them to be the decision maker, you know, we basically just give them options and allow them to, uh, again, have that autonomy in, in deciding, well, what's the next step? How do you want to go about this? How can we support you? Um, another way for us to identify patients is through our risk stratification sheet that we've created where we pull data from our electronic health record, we um, talk to insurance providers, we identify patients who um, have uncontrolled blood pressure, uncontrolled diabetes, mental health concerns, different care gaps, um, high hospitalization use, high cost of hospitalization in or of medical costs in general, and then any recent hospitalizations. Patients get like a little tick mark for every category that they meet, and then they get a score, and that helps us organize patients that we might be able to outreach to. Um, because again, not everyone is going to necessarily accept or want this level of support. Sometimes there are other reasons for these issues and these care gaps. So if, you know, we're not seeing many referrals come through from the provider end, we can use these, um, this information to reach out to patients. You'll be surprised by how many, like, confused and shocked responses I get from people when I call. And all I say is, how can we help you? How can we support you? How can we be there for you? Um, no one really says that to many of these people. A lot of the clients that I work with, they are the go-to person for their families. They're the ones that everyone goes to to handle everything. And so to have someone finally say, hey, let me help you with this, with this burden, with this weight, that can be really meaningful um, and can already just start that, that rapport building, that trust building. <clears throat> so some of the interventions and supportive services that we offer through CHW programming, we've all been trained... Sorry, let me get my stuff together here. 
We've all been trained as application assisters, and so um, that means that we can sign people up for insurance plans, whether that be an insurance plan on the marketplace, um, Medicaid, Medicare. We all have access to um, getting people signed up for insurance from the moment they walk through our door. We can also help them um, navigate issues that might come up along the way, recertifying a whole bunch of just just having them understand their insurance plan, understand their coverage. That's hard enough for me from with my own insurance. So I get that assistance is always beneficial. We have a sliding fee scale that's part of our you know FQHC status. And so we can help patients who need help completing applications, things like that. Everything from doing paperwork to literally walking into a specialist appointment with someone or navigating an eviction issue between a patient and a le- landlord trying to advocate for that patient and come up with a plan that will hopefully prevent that eviction from happening. Um, Linkage to community resources, that's definitely a big one. Like I said, our community partners are really important, and they really help us a lot. But I've realized that, yes, there are community resources out there, and it can be really relieving to find out, oh, this program can help me pay my utilities. But then when the patient gets there, and then they're asked for their birth certificate, the name of their their father, their, their, you know, all this information, um, IDs, and then they're supposed to mail back certain paperwork, fax certain paperwork. There's a time limit for a lot of these things to happen. And so you start to realize that, yes, the resource is available, but it can sometimes become an additional stress just to get access to that resource. So one, as community health workers, not only can we assist patients with navigating through all that paperwork, encouraging them and letting them know, hey, we're almost done, we're almost through this process, like keep going with it, don't give up. But we can even advocate on the end of talking to our partners and saying, hey, this is really hard for us to get through. Is there anything you all can do to help accommodate us or help make the process just a little bit more straightforward? So, you know, partners are very responsive to this if they have the feedback from the community that something isn't working out. But a lot of times people don't have that, you know, empowerment to speak up and say and to feel like it's going to actually make a difference. So we can remind people, you know, use your voice and you have support and your concerns are valid, those type of encouraging messages. Um, And I mentioned, too, about trying to become a one-stop shop as much as we can. And so sometimes our outreach worker can give you information about the pantries in your neighborhood, but we decided sometimes... We've had patients who passed out getting their labs drawn because they hadn't eaten anything for that whole day and even the day prior to that, and who knows how long before that. And so we used to have providers just go in the kitchen, grab their lunch, and give that to the patient at the time, and we decided that we should probably have some things on hand for emergency situations like that. Um, So as we get our patients connected to pantries in their area, we can also send them home with a food bag that can get them through about, you know, two weeks worth of meals and then hopefully get them more sustainable options along the way. Um, We also have smoking cessation programs and a bunch of other health education programs. Um, The material, the curriculums that the CHWs get trained in, all through partnerships with other agencies that can provide us that training and then we can you know, become the facilitators of these programs without necessarily having that medical background um, totally. Um, And also what I've really advocated for in these programs is to, you know, give back to the patient for that investment, for coming to the classes. And so incentives are big um, 
incentives are the way that I get people to come to these classes. I don't know if I would want to, if I had to choose between Netflix and a two-hour diabetes management class <laughs> where I have to confront all of the things that I never want to confront in the first place, I probably will choose Netflix. But if I also know that I get a $45 gift card to Kroger by coming to this class, I'm probably going to be a little bit more motivated to go because, one, I'll get that health education, but, two, I'll be able to deduct $45 from my grocery budget and use that money, you know, elsewhere. So it's really giving back for people's investment and commitment to their health. Um, so that's actually the incentive we provide in our smoking cessation program. And a lot of being a community health worker is listening to what people are telling you. And so um, clients in my class will often say, you know, I want to quit smoking, but last time I quit smoking, I gained a lot of weight. <clears throat> and I'm really afraid of that happening again. So we talk about education, you know, gaining a little bit of weight is pretty normal when you quit smoking from what I've been trained on. Um, but also, hey, let's, let's get this um, Kroger gift card and talk about how you can make some changes to your diet, to your lifestyle, as far as what you eat. So now I'm not only just telling you, well, why don't you just eat healthier? But no, I'm actually giving you the resources to encourage you to eat healthier as well. And that's what we do in our nutrition uh, education program, too. We have a community partner that comes in from UK, UK Cooperative Extension Office. They teach nutrition education classes. They cook for the class, so everyone gets to have a free meal in the class. And then we also provide the ingredients for that recipe that we made in the class for everyone to take home with them. So now you have the knowledge and you have the access to what you, for what you need to practice this behavior at home as well. And with our blood pressure monitoring programs, we work with the YMCA. And they have a blood pressure monitor program. So, you know, after explaining to them some of our transportation issues that our clients faced, they were able to meet us halfway. They come to our clinic to recruit people for the program. We work out some sort of plan for transportation. They get access to a three-month uh, three free gym membership to the YMCA, which is a great deal. And as we work on, you know, financial security and other things, we hope they're able to sustain those memberships and, you know, just get them into immediate um, resources as we work on the long-term sustainable options. And then we have diabetes management uh, programming and then chronic disease health education. And all of these programs... It's interesting how our area is big, but many of the people know each other. And so we'll have these classes and we'll see neighbors, you know, people that went to school together. They reconnect. And, you know, that just having someone to know, like, I'm not the only one in this area that is serious about my health, is, you know, working on it, is having challenges. We're able to build those relationships and um, build that community. And that speaks toward that neighborhood transformation. I think in, you know, Western societies where the value is in individualistic values most of the time, we oftentimes don't even know who our neighbors are. And if our clinic can be kind of the gathering space to, to worship together, to practice healthy behaviors together, just to have fun together, you know, it's a great service that can be provided to the community. So <clears throat> the impact of addressing social determinants, we've already seen them and. Like I said, we really only began this programming last year, but we've noticed a decrease in our no-show rates. Um, just last month, we started a program with Metro United Way. It's called Ride United, and we've got some funds to um, help our patients get lift rides. So anytime they need to come see us, and especially for those that have Medicare, 
because the Medicaid folks have some transportation resources through Medicaid, but Medicare, we realized that there was a gap there and they really did not have many options. And so this Ride United program helps us ensure that patients can get to us and can get to their specialist appointments um, when needed. So I hope we can continue that program. Um, it's helped us to decrease care gaps. A lot of times people don't need a high level of community health worker support. They just need to be reminded like, hey, you're due for a mammogram. Hey, you're due for a colon cancer screening. Um, and they just go like, oh, well, thanks for letting me know. Let me go ahead and take care of that. And so that has helped us to decrease care gaps in preventative care, increased engagement in blood pressure management and diabetes management. We equip our patients with the tools, with, you know, little workbooks to log their blood sugar, to log their blood pressure. And we say, hey, you can take this back and have a whole conversation on this. And your provider will be able to better make recommendations with all this data you present to them. And so they have an active role in that diabetes management or blood pressure management. And it's not just them being instructed on what to do, but it's a collaborative partnership now between the patient and provider. And <clears throat> what I appreciate the most is seeing changes in our um, patients' self-efficacy and their confidence in navigating resources, coordinating care, and communicating with their providers. So um, Aiken has templates for intake questionnaires and um, quarterly questionnaires to follow progress that you have with your patients. So we use all those templates in our clinics, and we were able to measure um, different things and assess for different things. Overall health status is a question that the patient is able to answer subjectively. They are asked, um, how would you rate your overall health? Five is poorest health. One is excellent health. And so you can see the numbers are showing from those questionnaires. Many of our patients at intake, they're rating their health pretty low. And it probably just is coming from that level of stress they feel at the time. And maybe even like true objective measures, maybe their, you know, diabetes is not controlled and all of those kinds of things. But as you can see, um, three months later with the quarterly review, we see a drop in that, which is getting them closer to that one rating of excellent health. And in the six months later, it's getting a little bit closer as well. So I think that speaks a lot, that big drop just right at the beginning. I think that really comes from finally feeling like I'm not by myself in this. Like I have a partner. I have someone who can help me stay on top of these things, um, especially as I be, I'm the primary caregiver for the rest of my family. And then <clears throat> we have two questionnaires measuring general self-efficacy and chronic disease management self-efficacy. And as you can see, um, the numbers from the blue at intake and to beyond at the quarterly three-month and six-month review, they go up as well. So having that confidence can just make a huge difference as well because if you don't have the confidence that you can navigate, you know, your day-to-day -day needs, you're probably just not going to do it at all. So I think that it's great that our patients are showing that they have now more information, they have more confidence, and they know they have access to support from our clinic should they encounter, you know, unexpected barriers along the way. So that's pretty much it. Uh, we're developing the program um, all the time, and so I'm always, that's why I like these presentations to be discussion-based. If you all have ideas, questions, feel free to, to throw them our way. But thank you for listening.
we don't have the resources. For a while, it, it's just been me um, as we've gotten the program off the ground. Now we have a community health worker in the schools, which is really helpful. Um, and we just hired last week another community health worker that's going to be based in the clinical area. And so we're going to try to use that as a way for her to touch as many patients, touch, you know, work with as many patients as she can. And then for those who need more um, complex or have additional needs, then she can transfer them over to me and we'll engage them in some home visits and things like that. So, yes. Thank you. Um, I would say look at the community centers in your area, too. They might be a little bit closer or easier to access for the patients. And a lot of them, especially for the um, older populations, they have sit-down yoga and different, like, chair exercises like that. So I say utilizing that as a resource. But looking at, honestly, for transportation needs, if that's what it's going to be, talking to Lyft and Uber because they have a lot of new initiative, health initiatives now where they're trying to make sure people have access and I've even heard, like, employment programs, too, where they're trying to help people get to job interviews and things like that. So your clinic might be able to develop a partnership with them. And then reaching out to the gyms. You know, the Y has done as much as they can, really, to try to make things a little bit more accessible. And they can only do so much, so there are limits to that. But I think working on those partnerships um, can help. As If they know the needs of your patient population, they might be able to help you out make some changes like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you say that you're the only? I was for a while, but yeah. How many of you are, how many do you? Caseload? So I capped my caseload at 25. <laughs> and, um, but that's not, that doesn't mean I'm meeting 25 people every week. Some of my patients or clients, you know, interchangeable. But uh, some of my clients we might meet once a week. Others we meet once a month. You know, they just don't necessarily have the same needs as others. Um, and so it really depends. And some of them, really what they need is to get plugged into those programs, right? They pretty much have the social issues intact. So I might see them in, like, you know, a blood pressure management class or a diabetes management class, check in with them, make sure they have food, let them know about, you know, any new initiatives we have going on. And others... We are going to every appointment together. They're calling me, you know, more times a week than others. So it varies, but I don't see any, I don't see all 25 in one week ever. Um, but 25 is the most that I will take on for that level of support. So how many are there now? Community health workers. We have three. We have the three, one in the schools, one in the clinic, and I'm all over the place. <laughs> so um, we're hoping, you know, we're, we're wanting to grow, I, you know, we'll, we're not even going to hit our 10 years for a couple more years, so we're wanting to expand, and then with that expansion, hopefully hire on um, more community health workers. We also have an outreach worker, and we definitely utilize her support because, again, some people are pretty self-sufficient. They just need a little bit of information, and so they kind of filter through her first, 
And then as we identify those with more complex um, conditions or complex situations, then they might get referred to me. Yeah. Yes. Right. Maybe culturally, or maybe they don't know how to cook something, or yeah. they don't know how to eat something. What strategies have you found to help with that? So, uh huh. Right. Use it. You didn't help their nutrition to become better. Absolutely. So, that's why I love the partnership we have with the nutrition class with the UK Cooperative Extension Office. Their whole program is healthy eating on a budget. So, every recipe that they uh, provide in the class is under $10 for the whole meal. Um, and so, and a lot of the meals we're using canned goods because we know that a lot of times that's what people have access to. So they'll teach in the class things like, you know, draining out all the juice and rinsing off your beans before you use them to decrease some of that salt content and um, using crock pots. And, and someone said to me the other day, well, I don't have a crock pot. So <laughs> that's now what I'm thinking about. How You know, if we're going to talk about crock pots, we need to make sure people actually have access to crock pots. So, so I absolutely hear what you're saying. But I was fortunate enough to find that partnership with UK Cooperative Extension. And their whole model meets exactly what the needs are of our community. So some of it is case by case. You know, if someone's really struggling with incorporating the lessons in that class at home, Hopefully they feel comfortable enough to express that and we can try to maybe identify some other options. Um, Louisville is really great as far as like um, having access to information, as far, you know, w with working with people from all, all types of different cultures. So like Americana Community Center, that's a, a great base for looking at how we can maybe uh, tend to the needs of people based off of certain cultural practices and things like that. So um, community partners is how we do it, and that, that nutrition program is, is best. And their curriculum might be available online too. So if you are, I can get you connected with my contact there if you're interested. Oh, and Dare to Care, they have a Cooking Matters program, and I think that's national. Um, we did a partnership with a round of classes with them. They actually give two bags of groceries and they make two different meals in the class and their meals are supposed to be like affordable, accessible meals. So maybe looking at Dare to Care Cooking Matters program if that's available in your area. And it was completely uh, free to our clinic. So, yeah. Yes. How are you all involved in trying to decrease compliance once they leave the hospital? So um, a lot of the so Lindsay is our director of development and grants and she pulls a lot of that data. She uses I mean there's a system that I, it was mentioned in the last uh, presentation, but our clinical coordinator was there, so she was or he was able to to talk about it. Um, so insurance providers and like quality teams and quality groups is where she can pull a lot of that and show whoever's been recently hospitalized, that's one of those ticks on the, um, the risk stratification sheet that we use. So we're able to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, are you planning on coming in and talking with, you know, to your primary care provider and making sure that we follow up with them in that way. 
Um, so pulling data from insurance providers and some of the other groups that she's a part of, she kind of leads the way with collecting data and helping us get information about who those patients are. Yeah, so um, in Kentucky, we have the Kentucky Prescription Assistance Program, so KPAP. And so um, they have a training you can go through, and they have a database where you can reach out to different, um, you know, prescription assistance programs and things like that. Things that aren't always available directly through the manufacturer if you were just to reach out to them. But because we're a part of, they're a part of that KPAP network, that can help people get access to medications that they can't afford otherwise. Besides that, we have a patient assistance fund that patients can get one-time emergency assistance. And, you know, we just kind of look at other sustainable income, um, income security types of plans. So whether that be employment. Um, I've also partnered with a Social Security disability lawyer who comes by anytime someone needs help with an application and will help initiate that application one of my clients who couldn't work just got approved for Social Security, so we had a whole dance in the office earlier about that. It was really, really great news. Um, but, yeah, so we try to just get them plugged in with financial security options or seeing if KPAP is an option. So. Yeah. All right. Well, it is Friday. <laughs> Thank you. And I think this is your last one, maybe, of the day. So I will let you go, and I'm here with cards if you all want to ask anything else. Thank you.